This is the What's On Your Table podcast, and I'm your host, Chance Ghanem. On this podcast, we talk everything about what's on your family's table and how to best impact the people that sit around that table. We're going to have amazing guests that are going to go in-depth into topics that can help you make daily changes to better impact yourself and your family. Make sure you subscribe on the platform that you are listening to right now and give us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the What's On Your Table podcast. We got an amazing guest here with you today. We got Olivia from Revolve Primal Health. And I'll tell you what, this is someone who I'm extremely excited to have a conversation with. She's got so many interesting things going on all over social media. I can't wait to dive into a couple of them. But how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. Excited to dive into this conversation. And before we get things started, do you want to give everybody just kind of a little background on you and how uh, your life was growing up? Sure. Yeah, I love that question. People never go back to the childhood, but I think that's important. Um, so my name's Olivia. I run Revolve Primal Health alongside my mom. She's my business partner, which is usually fun. <laughs> but <laughs> So we started Revolve. Um, we both have kind of struggled with our own issues growing up. I mean, I can only remember having really bad stomach aches. I can't remember a time when I didn't have bad stomach aches after I ate or, you know, really consumed anything. So I will say my childhood was probably not the conventional standard American diet, however, which is interesting. My mom was kind of ahead of her time at that time. And she was vegan and vegetarian and raw vegan. Okay. When I was, you know, in utero, I was a vegan. So my mom was vegan when I was um, in her belly. And I always blame her. I'm like, I get a bad score on a test. And I'm like, this is because <laughs> you weren't getting the right nutrients. So yeah, I, I had a little bit of a unconventional diet in that sense. So I grew up very shortly after, you know, I was born, I started eating meat. My mom always said that I wasn't really into the vegetarian way. Like I needed my meat. So, but that being said, you know, my mom was vegetarian and vegan. She was very conscious of what we're eating. So I think that's great. She was trying to source the best food and make the best food, but our ideas on the most optimal diet has obviously changed from that over the years um, through our own personal experience and experimentation and also through research and all of that. So yeah, we got into this kind of way of eating by having to really solve our own problems. Like I said, I had the worst stomach aches all the time. I went to so many doctors, a lot of specialists, got all the tests done, but I never remember anyone bringing up my diet. I mean, I would even bring it up to my doctor and say, oh, is it gluten? Is it dairy? You know, I tried out all of the different diets, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, mm -hmm. dairy-free, and nothing really seemed to work. And no one seemed to think that that was something that we should look into. And so when I was in college, I thought that I was eating, you know, the most healthy diet. I ate a lot of veggies and legumes and plants. Mm -hmm. I did eat meat, but in moderation, because, you know, that's what we've all been told is the ideal diet. But once I started to incorporate more animal foods and really looking at how I could, you know, properly prepare the food, that's when I really saw some real relief from my symptoms for once. Wow. 
That's, that's amazing. What were some of those things you started adding into your diet that you started to, you know, that, that did help you? Yeah. So I added in a lot of things, but I also think that the things that I took out were almost more important. So like I said, I was eating a lot of grains and veggies. I really cut back on grains. I think that I had way too many carbohydrates in my diet, even though they were from, you know, whole food sources. And um, along from alongside that, I also tried to cut back on processed foods. Um, even if I was eating like, quote unquote, healthy food, a lot of it was processed and packaged and from the grocery store. Um, I also was looking into the ingredients in my food. So looking at seed oils, chemical additives, things like that. So I think that that played a huge role. And then, you know, after removing these kinds of things, adding in more protein, more healthy fat, and then, you know, dabbling into the organ meats and eating nose to tail and really kind of dialing in and trying to get all of my nutrients from food rather than supplements and things like that. I think those were the biggest changes to my diet. Yeah, that I mean, that that really just laid out the entire thing. It's very easy to see when you take a look at those things that you're removing. And I thought that was definitely something interesting that you said that there's actually things that in the quote unquote healthy diet that were sold, there's actually stuff that may not be the healthiest for us come there's a couple of things you touched on there that I want to dive into, but before we get into the eating nose to tail, because that's a, that's a slogan that is very, very interesting to me, but I'm curious when you were making that transition and you were learning about the different things that you thought were good, what were some of those things just for like the viewers that maybe they're eating something that in their head is like, okay, I'm, I'm eating a healthy meal, but maybe we're not quite. Could you give a couple examples? Yeah. I mean, there's so many, unfortunately, I think that it all it takes is going into the supermarket and going into the middle aisles and you're going to have a hard time finding something that's really made out of real food in a way that's good for you. I think some of the biggest offenders of these health food myths are one seed oils. Um, A lot of people have been led to believe that these are a superior fat, better for your heart, but this is really based on old advice and also based on inaccurate data. And so I think that that's one of the big problems is that this food is in everything. Even the bottle of vegetable oil is gonna say heart healthy on the front. And so if you don't really know any of this background information and you go into the grocery store and you see that, you're gonna think that you're making the right decision. So that's a big one um, that I learned about and I started to look out for. Another thing I would say are, you know, fake alternatives, whether that's fake dairy or fake meat. These are often, you know, these corporations are using greenwashing, which is a technique to make your food look like it's better for the environment or better for health through, you know, different labels or slogans or marketing techniques. And so a lot of these things, a lot of people are you know, thinking that they're making a better choice when they choose a Beyond Burger or an Impossible Burger or yeah. oat milk. So I think that's another one where these foods are not only are they highly processed and have a lot of additives, but they're really lacking in the nutrition that we're looking for when we're eating meat or eating dairy. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. I was vegan for two years. So when I was vegan, I like love the Beyond Burgers and I'm like, oh, this thing's so good. It's so close to meat. And then I looked down, I'm like, man, they had me tricked so bad because you thought it was better. And it's like, it's not, it's definitely way different. Yeah. I mean, all it takes is looking at the ingredient list and it's kind of hard to really, you know, the logic is not there to see that there's so many ingredients in this thing compared so to me. If somebody in our, our listeners right now, maybe they're new to this and they're like, they might've listened to a couple of podcasts and they're like, okay, I'm trying to understand my health. What are a couple of things you said seed oils. Could you maybe elaborate what that would look like on the ingredient list? Or does it just say seed oil? And what are a couple other red flags that they should be looking at in the grocery store when they're looking at that ingredient list? Yeah, great question. So seed oils, are also known as vegetable oils. That's kind of the more marketable term because refined seed oils doesn't sound as good, but these are things that are extracted from seeds or plants and they're highly refined, highly processed, meaning that not only are they going to throw our omega, um, our fatty acids out of balance, the omega-3 versus omega-6, but they're going to be very unstable, meaning they oxidize easily and that can lead to inflammation in the body. And so when you're looking at ingredient lists, it's going to say canola oil, grapeseed oil, rapeseed oil, sunflower oil, safflower oil, corn oil. There's a long list of the names that this falls under. So I would definitely recommend kind of looking at those names and being sure that you can recognize them in a list. Mm -hmm. And then beyond seed oils, I always like to tell people to look at the added sugar seeing what form the sugar is in, just like seed oils, there are so many names that sugar Mm -hmm. falls under. So it can be really difficult to recognize that dextrose means sugar. So that's something to kind of investigate. And then artificial sweeteners can be another problem because that's a case where people think they're making a better choice because on the nutrition label, if there's artificial sweeteners, you know, maybe it'll look like a better option because it's going to have less carbs, less Mm -hmm. sugar, but these have been linked to things like weight gain and gut problems. And so they're not always a better option depending on what type of artificial sweetener it is. So yeah, those are a few things. And then there are chemical additives like gums and emulsifiers that may cause problems for some people if they're dealing with gut distress, things like that. Got you. Definitely. Those are, those are a lot of things we need to keep in mind. Now, one thing that just kind of listening to your story, it sounds like you kind of went down that list of, okay, how can I get things out of my diet? And then it sounded like when you started adding things, you really cared about the source and where things were coming from. Could you kind of touch on that? And what was that journey like? What was it like to learn that you can find food from not from the grocery store and the different qualities? How is that journey for you? Yeah, that was a very important part of my journey. I mean, as I said, I've been vegan and vegetarian in the past, and that was not only for my health, but for the environment. And so the impact that I have on the environment and the climate has always been really important to me. And so to me, the sourcing part is not only for health, but really important when we're looking at, you know, the way that we're treating our soils and everything like that. And so yeah, I kind of tried to not go to the grocery store as much as possible. I'm really privileged to live in an area where I have access to locally grown regeneratively raised meat via the farmer's market or a local farm that I can 
buy into and have a pickup close to me. So yeah, I think that was the main goal when I started to source things locally was to get regenerative meat that is really nutritious, but also, you know, giving back to the land and really supporting a healthy environment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. With so I, I, if you don't know, I'm I have a regenerative ranch. You know, that's definitely our focus. Um, is we're all in on that. If there's people that are new, why regenerative ranching for the environment? Because we can talk about. I think a lot of people can kind of put together in their heads like, okay, a feedlot, they're shoving corn into the cow. That's different than if they're getting a pasture full of grass. But how's the environmental impact different? And why did it? Why did you want to go towards the regenerative meat route? Well, you can probably tell everyone better the environmental impacts, but I'll talk a little bit about kind of my journey through it. So just to start, I'll say that I never want to tell people that they shouldn't buy meat if they can't afford, you know, the best regenerative meat. I think an optimal diet includes animal foods and, you know, the best meat is the meat that you can afford and include in your diet. That being said, I think that we should do everything in our power whether it's, you know, meeting your farmer or buying in bulk or those kinds of things to make it more affordable to buy this kind of meat, because these regenerative practices are really giving back to the land. You know, when ruminant animals are properly grazed, they can improve water cycles, you know, improve biodiversity of the soil. And these are all really important things. So people often look at these feedlots, like you said, and they think there's no way that eating meat can align with my views of, you know, a healthy environment. But in reality, if you're eating the right kind of meat, you can actually be doing a service to the environment, which I think is really beautiful. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think you touched on a good thing there on understanding that meat's important and then understanding that there are levels that if, you know, if it's available, and that's the one thing that we're trying to do is to make it available to to everyone. Now, when, so looking at your diet right now, just kind of going through the full overview, I mean, that <laughs> your, your story and your journey, I think speaks to so many people because you're looking for the answers. You know, we're all kind of looking for these dietary answers in our life because not everybody's meant to eat the same exact things, but there's a commonality that if we look at it, we can find some, some good, some good information. Where would you put yourself now? Like, is there even a label? Is, is the label Revolve Primal? Is that the type of um, diet that you're consuming? Where would you put yourself now? And, and uh, how can other people kind of target towards that? Yeah, so we kind of coined this t- term of modern primal health. Okay. And so that's the idea that we recognize that we live much differently from our ancestors. You know, we live in a big city. I live in a tiny apartment. A lot of us have nine to five jobs where we have to sit in an office all day. You know, this isn't really exactly like the ancestral lifestyle, but that being said, we can really incorporate a lot of wisdom and techniques and practices into our diet and lifestyle from this ancestral practice that will really benefit us and kind of allow us to live the most happy, long, enjoyable life. So I would say if you're trying to kind of compare it to more well-known diets, it would be close to kind of a paleo type of diet. Um, But yeah, I think that really experimenting for yourself is important because like you said, everyone's different Mm -hmm. and you can't exactly just go to Instagram and find someone to tell you like, 
you're going to get so much conflicting information there, which is kind of why we're here and we're trying to tell people. Like, I think one of the biggest barriers that people come across when it comes to their nutrition and their health is learning to cook and actually making the food and making these changes in their diet. So I think that if you can really focus on sourcing good food, so that's, you know, the highest quality meat that you can, not only muscle meat, but organs and bones and all that, um, seafood, the most nutrient dense foods, quality dairy, if that works for you. So focusing on sourcing that. And then when it comes to plant foods, um, once again, sourcing is key and buying local, seasonal, organic produce when you can. I think the seasonal and local part is really important. So you're not flying food from other countries in the winter to eat a pineapple. Like that's a big part of our modern primal diet. And so, yeah. And then, so once you have the sourcing part down, it comes to the preparation. And so, you know, learning how to cook meat or cook seafood, incorporate eggs into your diet. And then these ancestral techniques and practices that have been used for so long to properly prepare um, plant foods like grains and veggies so that they are not only neutralizing these anti-nutrients that could harm us, but also just making the nutrients in these foods as available to us as possible. So yeah, that's pretty much our approach. I mean, I think this is so important, this aspect of being able to cook and prepare your own food that we've made a whole course on this because I get questions all the time about what do you eat? Why do you eat it? How do you do it? Mm-hmm. And so I really want to walk people through this whole step from start to finish of sourcing to preparing to really balancing your meals for optimal awesome. blood sugar, metabolic health, hormonal health, all of that. Awesome. That's, that's, that's amazing. And like, I like how you laid it out because it is a process. It's not like it's, it's very different from going from something that you buy at the grocery store out of the freezer section, you put it in the microwave and you eat it to getting quality food from a farm that you got to cook that takes time to set a nice, you know, dinner for your family. And that's, that's a crazy process and a crazy difference. And it's cool that you have that uh, opportunity for people to really learn. I'll put all the links down below, but make sure everyone goes and checks that out. One thing that you, you touched on and I want to go back to it because it's something that I get hate for on TikTok all the time uh, because, you know, TikTok hates cows. Like, well, a small portion of TikTok hates cows. And and they say, they yell at me and they say that the cows are horrible for the water. They they drink so much water. And I know that the stats that they're putting out there are a little, little stretched, but you said something that regenerative raised meat can help the water cycles. Could you touch on that just, just like a little bit for people? to understand and and maybe shed some light on that? Yeah. So I'm not a scientist. I'm not a farmer, maybe one day, but I will say this. It's always in um, the meatless Monday marketing that I disagree with quite a bit Mm -hmm. because like you said, they're really stretching these data points and kind of portraying it in a way that really gets people going, but it's not super accurate. So I'll start by saying that when you look at the water usage of cows, even a typical produced cow, which is, you know, conventional, not regenerative, you have to look at the different types of water that they're using. So, you know, there's different types of water, green water, blue water, gray water. And so I think it's nearly 94% of the water 
that even a typical cow is using is green water. And that's water that is rainfall. It's going to fall whether the cow is there or not. And so I think that's an important distinction to make. But then I think the water cycle argument is that these ruminant animals are, you know, grazing the land properly and really helping with soil health. So when you have healthy soil, the water is going to be able to absorb and use the water better rather than if you're, you know, doing monocrop agriculture that's really destroying the land, making it super arid and it's not going to be able to absorb the water as well. And this is super important in places that are more prone to droughts. I'm from California. I grew up in a drought. Um, and so, yeah, these practices that we can, I guess not we, but you can mm -hmm. use in raising animals are really important. And so if you can support this kind of agriculture, once again, not only are you not harming the environment, but you're actually doing a service because animals are part of the ecosystem. You know, it's like the ecosystem works all together to really provide a healthy, natural environment. And so you can't just take something out of the equation and expect it to work as it should. Yeah, definitely. And we, we are currently in a drought. We're kind of praying for rain. The weather people say we're supposed to get rain this week. So everyone around here is like super excited, but, uh, it's crazy because where we keep our cows, that's where they get watered by them going to the bathroom. It spreads the water across the pasture. Like it's, there's better grass where the cows are because of that as well. So it's one of those things that uh, I really appreciate you kind of diving into that um, and just giving people that different look because I think when people hear me talk, they're like, well, you're just the farmer. You raise the cows. You have a bias. So it's definitely nice to hear a different perspective and hear how you see it. So one thing you said earlier, and I said I wanted to get back to it, is the idea of eating nose to tail. Now, this is something that I think as soon as you say tail, it kind of freaks people out, maybe even nose. Like, they're like, are we making hot dogs or what are we doing here? Like, they, they, that's crazy concept. But could you explain that and why you think that's so important? Yes. So nose to tail, as it's often referred to, is just the concept of using the whole animal. And this is not a new, like, I didn't make this up. This is not a new concept. People have been eating this way for a long time in all sorts of different cultures. So it's really about just eating the whole animal. And, you know, these days in our modern diet, we're really just used to eating muscle meat. So like a chicken breast or a steak. And so that can not only have nutritional impacts, but more than that, it's just, you know, a waste of the animal. So if we're going to eat animals, I think that it's the most nutritious, sustainable, and ethical way is to use the whole animal. So this is going to look like buying a whole chicken instead of just buying the chicken breast every time mm -hmm. or buying even cuts of meat that have bone and the skin on. That's a way of eating nose to tail. And then it can range to some more adventurous ways of eating. So eating organ meat, making bone broth with the bones, eating the skin. Um, yeah, all types of things. Yeah. So you're saying that the more diversity we have in that, that's getting us different nutrients into our body. Yes. So especially organ meat is very highly concentrated with a lot of essential nutrients that we need. So you'll probably see a lot of people eating liver, heart is great, all sorts of organs, um, intestines, things like that. So you'll get a lot of nutritional benefits from that. And then 
another thing is that if you're only eating muscle meat, you might throw out the amino acids that you have out of balance. And so it's really important to get your muscle meats in and eat your bone broth. That's going to have a different set of amino acids. Um, yeah. And then these cuts of meat, like the more cartilage, you know, sinewy bits will have more of these things that people are always looking for, which is collagen and gelatin, which is really going to be great for, you know, bone health, joint support, healthy skin, things like that. So it's really in your best interest to kind of learn how to use all these different parts of the animal. And not only that, but it's going to save you a lot of money because these are the cuts of meat that are less cherished by people these days. I think they're getting a little more popular, but you know, if you're eating, if you're buying a whole chicken, you're going to get better value than just buying breasts. Mm -hmm. Organ meat is very affordable. And like I said, very highly concentrated with these great nutrients. So it's a great value. So yeah, I think if you want to have the best nutrient dense diet at the best cost, learning how to eat nose to tail is super important. Nice. Yeah. I was, I, I'm in a program with a lot of different farmers and ranchers from across the country. And there's a lady in there who she sells chickens and she does regenerative practices with her chickens. And she was telling us about chicken head tea or something like this, that she would use a chicken head. And she's like, it's the most nutrients, the best thing. And I'm just like, I've never seen nobody cook no chicken heads. Like that is the strangest thing in the world. And I'm like, well, Maybe someday we'll give that a try, but I don't know. Have you, have you heard of anyone eating chicken head? I've never seen a chicken head, but I don't doubt that it's delicious and nutritious. I mean, you can just get anything that you think is too weird to eat, put it in a pot, put some water and make bone broth. I mean, I make it every week. It's super easy, great for your gut and so many other things. So if you just get some beef bones, beef marrow, beef knuckles, things like that, that are going to have a lot of collagen in them. And I like chicken feet. Maybe I'll find a chicken head one day and throw it in. <laughs> you should. I Supposedly, I guess, go look it up. I, I got to admit, I didn't go Google it, but there's just something about, I've seen chicken heads. I've, I've butchered my own chickens before and I just threw them all away. Cause I was like, I'm not eating that, <laughs> but maybe there's some secret sauce there we don't know about. Um, a couple other things that I wanted to dive into that <clears throat> I saw on your, your guys' social media that was so awesome. And it's something that we recently got into is raw milk. So we got a local dairy. Actually, my wife's going over to pick up uh, some more milk today that we get <clears throat> just straight raw dairy right, right from the cow. Could you talk on that for our audience and kind of explain a little bit of why? I, and I assume I'm right. Like that's what you drink as well, correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you could just explain that for everybody and just let them know why raw dairy. Sure. My favorite topic. I could talk about dairy all day um, because for so long I thought I was, you know, intolerant to dairy. So I cut it out of my diet thinking that it was going to help my stomach ache, help my skin problems. And I never found any relief. I was probably replacing it with horrible alternatives, but then I came across raw dairy. So raw dairy is unpasteurized dairy. Um, pasteurized dairy is what you're going to find probably in the grocery store. It's been heated. Um, sometimes it's been homogenized, which is breaking down the fat, fat molecule so that it stays together rather than rising to the top. And so the difference between pasteurized and unpasteurized or raw dairy is that 
The raw dairy retains all of these great nutrients that we're looking for in dairy. So great fat soluble vitamins. It's going to remain intact. The good bacteria and the enzymes that actually helps us digest. So that's why a lot of people find that they can't tolerate pasteurized dairy, but they have a lot easier of a time, you know, tolerating raw dairy because it has those enzymes that we need to digest it. So for example, there's lactate, which is a brand of milk that's pasteurized and they claim that it's easier to digest, but they're putting in that lactase enzyme. So the raw dairy has those enzymes in it. So raw dairy is really an amazing food. The only problem is it's really hard to access. I mean, in California, sometimes I'm in California and you can buy it at the grocery store and that's great. So yeah, I think that if you think that you're dairy intolerant, it's just a matter of one, healing your gut and making sure that everything's intact and you're super healthy. And then two, sourcing a good quality dairy and trying to incorporate that into your life slowly and like doing it in a proper way. But I've, a lot of people find that, in fact, they're not dairy intolerant. This has happened to me and my mom, my sister. So many people mm-hmm. have just thought that they're dairy intolerant when, in fact, like most things, it's a matter of quality. Yeah, definitely. And I'll tell you what, when you get a good cream line on a gallon of milk, there's about nothing better. It's like, oh, my goodness. One thing I got to ask, because we have an ice cream making machine, so like we can make the ice cream out of the milk. And do you have a recipe or do you know a way to do it without putting like a cup of sugar in it? Because we cut back on a lot of the sugar. But do you have any secret tips to make healthy ice cream without a ton of sugar? Yes, you have come to the right person. Oh, man. (laughs) This is my pride and joy. My favorite recipe that I've ever created is a nutrient-dense raw dairy ice cream. Because, you know, I'm sure a lot of people like ice cream and they think that it's a guilty pleasure. I love it. You know, it's bad for them. But I think, I mean, just even beyond dairy, I think you can make anything that you love and make it healthy and good for you and make you feel good if you do it in the right way and you use quality ingredients. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my philosophy around cooking and creating recipes. So the ice cream, I like to make, if you have an ice cream maker, you can put, I think it's a cup of milk, two cups of raw cream, some egg yolks, and I sweeten it with honey. You know, if you can tolerate honey, you can use honey. And that's, I find a really good source of sugar. You know, when I, I've had a glucose monitor before, which tracks your response to foods like carbohydrates and sugar and how your blood sugar responds. Mm -hmm. When I eat something with sugar, like ice cream, it'll really spike my blood sugar. But when I eat this ice cream that I make with raw dairy, it has a lot of healthy fat from the cream and the egg yolks, and then just a little bit of honey, because, you know, when you have really good quality cream, like that's of flavor and sweetness in and of Mm. itself. So you just need a little bit of honey. And I find that, you know, it doesn't make me feel sick. doesn't really raise my blood sugar too much. And then you can experiment and make whatever flavors you want. But I think it's a great example of how you can make any food, your favorite foods, delicious, nutritious, and something that's not going to make you feel sick. If you learn how to cook and you learn all of these techniques and practices, that will make them truly nourishing. 
Yeah, definitely. And I, I appreciate that. I, I am now going to try that probably tonight because like I said, we're getting a fresh gallon today. So I'll probably be trying the ice cream ASAP because nice. that's the one thing that, uh, I, like you said, I've learned that with a lot of different things. When you really go to the source and you remove all the other junk, you're like, oh, okay, this isn't, this isn't bad if I make it myself. And that's one thing I've had to really learn how to do. And my wife's gotten really good at cooking different recipes for somebody who's brand new to cooking. And maybe that's, that's one thing because I sell bulk beef. So if you buy beef from us, you're buying 50 pounds is our smallest. And we sell up to 400 pound boxes of beef. And people are like, chance I'm used to just going to the grocery store and buying one cut. And I just use this one cut. Now I got all these different cuts. And I, I always say, okay, we're going to teach you how to cook. You need to learn how to cook. Could you kind of elaborate on that? Maybe from your own experience of why is it important to be able to cook and not just be reliant on something you just put in the microwave? Yeah, that's great. And I mean, I think buying in bulk is great for that reason, because you're going to be exposed to so many new things that you would have never come across. But like I said, I think when you cook, you're using the right ingredients, everything is going to be better. Not only is it going to taste better, it's going to be better for you and it's going to be cheaper. But I think for people who are just kind of diving into a new diet or learning how to cook, first of all, this course that I've made is probably going to be exactly what you need, but I'll give you some of the high level tips that I used myself and help a lot of people. So when it comes to protein, I think one of the best things I've learned is how to slow cook, because that's how you're going to make a lot of these bigger, more affordable, more nutritionally rich cuts. So not just a steak or ground beef, but like a chuck roast or um, beef shin or oxtail or things like that. That's how you're going to make these super easy to cook and really delicious. So my favorite way is to get a large oven safe dish. You can also use like a pressure cooker or a slow cooker and you brown your cut of meat on both sides, searing it so that it gets a nice crust. Mm -hmm. And then you can make it straight up and just put some bone broth in it and put it in the oven on a low temperature, like 250 degrees and let it cook super slow from five to eight hours, depending on how big the cut is. I think this is an extremely useful tool because It'll take you 15 minutes to make a giant meal or a meal prep protein, which I think is really, if you're going to meal prep anything, it should be a quality protein that you can have in your fridge mm-hmm. and use whenever. So yeah, I think slow cooking is really important, but yeah, I think learning to cook is really key because you don't want to be looking up a recipe and following a recipe every single night. Like that's just annoying and it's never going to happen. Yeah. So I think if you can learn the fundamentals of how to use salt, people are afraid of salt, but that's really how you make delicious food and we need good salt. So Mm -hmm. if you have a quality salt, don't be afraid to use it. Um, How to take your meat out of the fridge a few hours before you're cooking so that it's really coming to room temperature and cooking in a nice, even way. Um, And then I think you know, when it comes to plant foods, it becomes a whole other thing in terms of learning how to properly prepare grains through soaking or sprouting Mm -hmm. or fermenting like sourdough. And then you could even do some fermenting of veggies to make them more digestible. A lot of people have problems with raw vegetables. I used to eat a lot of kale salads and I wondered why I felt horrible 
but it was probably because of all of the raw kale. So yeah, if you can learn how to really cook down your leafy greens, which are a great part of a diet or ferment your veggies to make them more digestible. These are all good practices that you should have on hand. Mm -hmm. And then I think once you really start to cook, you're going to get down the groove and you're going to know what makes part of a balanced meal. And so you don't have to follow a recipe every single night. It's still fun to, you know, look up a fun recipe and make it. But once you really learn how to cook a cut of meat and then you have your sides, you have your veggies, your starchy veggies, your potato, your rice, and you have a beautiful dish in 30 minutes. But I agree that it can be really daunting, especially to try out new cuts. Um, I made a whole cheat sheet in the course of different cuts of beef, pork, chicken, and, you know, the best ways to cook those things, whether it's slow cooking on the grill, braising, things like that. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's just another reason they need to definitely go check out your course and see everything you got for them over there. And also your, your Instagram page and all your socials are, are pretty amazing with all the different things you're doing. Are th- is there anything that we haven't talked about here today that you wanted to cover and go into for everybody? I don't think so. Yeah. I guess if, if they're wanting to learn how to cook, that's a great free resource as well is to find us on Instagram. I revolve primal health. I try and make a lot of free content so that people are getting excited about cooking in this way and learning how to put liver in their meatballs so that they can start eating nose to tail or make pate, um, all these different types of recipes. And once again, making ice cream in a way that you can enjoy it and not feel sick after. So yeah, that's a great resource for people as well. But no, I don't think so. I'm excited to check out your farm maybe i'll get a nice 400 pounds <laughs> yeah we'll, to cook we'll, get with. You, we'll get you hooked up um is there anywhere else we said your your social media is there is there anywhere else where people can go follow you uh get get the course where can they go to get the course definitely and um and anything else that you want them to go check out sure yeah i'll send you the link so that they can find in the show notes how to get to the course you can find us on instagram at revolve primal health That's also our website, revolveprimalhealth.com. And if you have any questions, I recommend a DM because that's how I get to people most often on Instagram DMs. But you can also shoot us an email at julia at revolveprimalhealth.com. But yeah, you'll find all these things on Instagram and our website. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate the information you shared with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The What's On Your Table podcast is brought to you by Ghanem Ranch, whose mission it is to provide your family with nutritionally dense pasture-raised meat shipped right to your door. Head over to GhanemRanch.net to learn more about how they raise their beef and to enter to win a free pack of steaks shipped right to your door.